today as we continue in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, who doesn't like to begin a sermon with an animal pick? So take a look at this one here. Look at this pick here. How I feel. Look at that. How do they catch these animals doing this? This is not CGI either. This is not a Photoshop. How I feel when I wear my new swaggy clothes. Look, it looks like that cat is strutting. You know, you just catch a, catch a cat or catch a dog or catch a pet of any sort in any sort of freeze frame pose, and you just never know what you're going to get. How I feel when I wear my new swaggy clothes, right? When we get a new set of clothes or new shirt or something like that, man, we just feel great. We're just kind of walking along, strutting. We feel great. But today we're talking about putting on the new man, putting on the new man. And if you've been with us for a number of years and you've been here with a number of years with me, you know this is one of my favorite metaphors we see in Scripture. And I draw from it quite often, and today we're going to look at it specifically, one of the places that we see it, we draw that from in Scripture, which is Colossians chapter 3. We see this dynamic of putting off the old man daily and putting on the new man, putting off our old nature, who we were before. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, God tells us that is truly gone in the sense that that's no longer our true identity. Our new identity is our true identity. We are new. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. However, the Bible tells us that our part of growth in becoming more like Jesus Christ, our part in spiritual maturity, our part in our own discipleship, if, if you will, is our daily sanctification, or excuse me, our daily consecration, that daily commitment and dedication of our lives into the Lord Jesus Christ and putting off that old man and putting on the new. And so that's the dynamic we're going to look at today. And so Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and following, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek those things which are above, those things that are of God and not of the natural world. Put your energy into that. That's what he's saying. Where Christ is, that's where Christ is. The risen Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. Verse 2, set your mind on things above. Not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Talk about the wonderful protection you have there. When Christ, who is our life, he is the very source of our life, when he appears, excuse me, you will appear with him in glory. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, we know the ultimate culmination of the second coming of Jesus Christ for us is the fact that we will spend eternity in glory and glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears once again, then you will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, so what are we called to do upon this earth? Therefore, put to death, put to death, don't just try to limit them, but put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, unbelievers in the world, in which you yourself once walked while you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off these things, put these things off. And he's not giving you an impossible task. He knows because this is putting these off, it is according to your new nature, your true nature. So put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and put on, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
where there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Because of what we become in Jesus Christ, these man-made barriers have now fallen and we are one in Christ. Lord God, as we come now to your word, help us to really see not only the metaphor, the powerful metaphor here, but how it speaks to a great reality, Lord, that we've been made new in you. But we also have responsibility in our spiritual growth and maturity daily, and that is to remind ourselves daily of who we are and to live in it, that the, no, that the old nature, the old man is no longer us, but the new nature, that new nature who's been made new in your son, Jesus Christ, that is truly who we are and that we are to walk in it. Lord, we know we can't do it, and nor are we called to do it in our own power. But Lord, you give us all the power that we need. You give us all the guidance and direction that we need through the person of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Lord, we ask that you'd even give us the strength to follow daily. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The very first thing that we see in verses one through four is to seek the things above, to seek the things above. What Paul is telling us in this section is that we have died to Christ, We have died to Christ, and we were raised with Christ. That's part of our identification with Christ. And that's what, in fact, that we illustrate very powerfully anytime we baptize someone, anytime any church baptizes a believer in Jesus Christ. They illustrate the fact that we've been identified with the death of Jesus Christ. Our old nature has been put away by giving our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we were raised in newness of life. The baptism doesn't make that happen. The baptism symbolizes that 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 change has already taken place. At the moment we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and cleansed and made new, and we're identified with Christ. So now Paul's telling us here and telling the church at Colossae and those believers that were there in that place, you died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, therefore you have not only the ability but the responsibility to set your mind on things above. If you remember our previous section last week, Paul addressed many of the foolish attempts that he had seen in the, the, the city of Colossae that had infiltrated the church at Colossae at a personal attempts, these foolish attempts at self-righteousness. Some of these belief systems of the cult leaders around had infiltrated the church, and he said those things not only are wrong, but you are going to be led astray and you're going to be frustrated Foolish attempts at self-sanctification. But what he says, he says, remind yourself of your true nature. You were raised with Christ. The very first thing that we see, how powerful that is. You were raised with Christ when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving he was exactly who he said he was, that he was the son of God. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we're identified with his resurrection. And we are raised perfect and pure. That's our true identity. God looks at us and he sees us as perfect and pure. So he says, if then you were raised with Christ Jesus. In fact, the word there in the original language is best translated since you were. Not if then, but since you were. It's an understanding that if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a matter of if you've been made new or now you've got to do some new things to truly be made new. Remember Paul addressed that last week. He said it's not Jesus Christ plus something else that we have to add to our salvation. It's surrendering our lives 
in our lives alone to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to surrender all that we are. We are to turn the keys of our life. We're to take the keys of our life, if you will, out of our pocket and turn them over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we are raised perfect and pure. Now, he says, because of that, seek those things which are above. It's not something that's impossible, some sort of an impossible task that we've been given. It is truly seeking after the new you. It is the new you. That's who you are. You're not the old person anymore. The true you is now the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within you. You've been given a new life. And so he says, now you can seek those things which are above. You know, John Piper, one of our greatest uh, contemporary Christian authors, speaks of an illustration of a couple that lived all they could, saved up all their life to retire to pick up seashells on the shore. Now, we all, that sounds appealing at a certain level, right? To, to just relax, to just take a deep breath and relax. But he's saying, if that's all that we're doing, if we're living life for that and that alone, he says that that is a waste of our life. Yes, there's time for relaxation. Yes, there's a time to take it easy after we worked hard for, for the entirety of our life. But he says life is more than that. We're going to find the greatest fulfillment in setting our mind on things above, living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says this, in fact, himself when he says store up treasure in heaven. Store up treasure in heaven. Our treasure is not found on, on a seashore that we can collect and put in a jar. We're found, our treasure is found in heaven. So he says, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remember, this was hitting those false teachers right between, right squarely in the eye. Remember, there were false teachers there in the city of Colossae that were infiltrating the church and they were in their Their false views were infiltrating the church and people were falling away from the faith and people were falling back into frustration of life. And one of the things that they did is they attacked Jesus. Remember, that's the two things that false teachers do. They attack the person of Jesus Christ and they attack salvation, who Jesus is and what it takes for us to be saved. So he reminds them Jesus Christ is the risen God. He is the risen Savior that sits at the right hand of the Father. And he reminds them of that position of power. And he's saying to the, to the believers there, you have all that you need. You have all the power that you need in Christ Jesus to set your mind on things above, to live as God calls you to live. You don't live out of trying to earn your salvation, try to add something to the work of Jesus Christ. You live and do good works for gratitude unto the Lord and for your personal growth. But he says this, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. Not only where you seek those things above, but we are to set our mind. We are to plant that firm foundation. Many of you have ever set a fence before. What do you do? Some, some fences, shorter fences, maybe those sort of split rail fences, you can pack dirt around them. But if you want a solid fence, you set it in concrete. And that's the thing here he's saying. Set our mind on things above. Set our mind in concrete upon those things above. You see, growth in Christ, our personal side of growth in Christ, we know ultimately that God is the one that's sanctifying us. God is ultimately the one that is changing us to be more like Jesus Christ. However, our part in that isn't a matter of sort of a laissez-faire growth. We can't just sort of take it easy. We can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to kind of set my mind on things of Christ and above when they're convenient for me. We have to have a proactive attitude towards godliness and maturity, towards godliness and maturity, we have to seek out and set our minds in concrete 
upon the things above. He says that all this is based upon the fact, once again reminding us, that we died in Christ. We were died. It says, verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You see, there is nothing more definitive than death. Take a look at the screen. There is nothing more definitive to death. The new you is the true you. The true you isn't who you were before, no longer. The true you is who you now are in Jesus Christ. He said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We should now live a Christocentric life, a Christocentric life. We've all heard of sort of uh, that the heliocentric universe. We are all orbiting as the word world orbits around Earth and the planets orbit around the sun. Our lives are to orbit around Jesus Christ, who Christ, he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So not only do we live that Christocentric life, but when we do, it speaks of, a, of several things that are benefits of that life unto us by the grace of God. We're protected from the storms of life. Does that mean that they'll go away? Does that mean that we won't experience them? Does that mean that we won't f- face difficulty as believers in Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Our Ukrainian brother there that we saw earlier in the service, in the video, the Lottie Moon video, Uh, After he came to faith in Christ, he lost his mother as well. And all of us, if we were to raise our hands, we could speak of loss and difficulty and storms of life. So it doesn't mean that those things go away. We live in a world that is broken by sin, but yet we have peace in the midst of it. We also have assurance of our salvation. We don't have to live daily wondering, oh man, is this... Okay, I did, let's see, I did five sins, I had five sins today. There are five times that I failed the Lord. If I get one more, it's almost like fouling out of an NBA game. Oh, man, if I get one more, then, I'm, then I've lost my salvation. Oh, man, what if today is like college basketball? I have five fouls and I'm out, you know? We don't have to live in fear of that. We have assurance of our salvation. Now, does that mean we just go around living any way that we want to? No, in fact, we may come back to Romans 6 a little bit earlier when Paul says that very thing. He says, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? He says, absolutely not. No, we're not trying to earn our salvation, but we're living in gratitude for what God has done. Not only for gratitude for him, but growth in our lives. And also he knows, he knows what will bring us joy and happiness. And it's not living for the world. It's living in obedience to him. So not only is it the assurance of our salvation, but Jesus Christ is the source of our lives. We don't find happiness and joy. We don't find uh, what we need in anything else other than Jesus Christ. And he says in that very Christ, verse 4, when Jesus Christ, who is our life, when he appears, when he appears, then we will appear with him in glory. The wonderful thing about that is even though we live, we live in peace in the midst of the storms of life, but one day we look ahead, we look forward to the day when Christ will return and we too will dwell with him in glory. When he returns, we'll be vindicated for all of the reasons and all of the the motivations for the way that we live as we live as foreigners in this world, as, as the book of Peter tells us, as Peter in his writings tells us, but also when Christ returns, we will spend eternity in glory, that indescribable, indescribable eternal state of the joy and unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about heaven, why sometimes for us does it seem more sort of ethereal? Does it seem more abstract? Does it seem more out there and something that we just can't really latch onto? I think oftentimes it's because 
we are living for things of this world. We're too attached to this world. So we, and when we think about, when we see the Bible described, we see God himself describe what heaven will be like. These beautiful pictures that we see throughout Scripture, uh, and some of these things, just doing the best that God doing what he can to describe to a finite mind what heaven will be like, but we ultimately know it will be joyous and great because the unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ, that would become more concrete, that would become more powerful to us as we begin to live not for the world, but for God. So we're called, first of all, to seek the things which are above. Secondly, we're called to put to death the old things. Put to death the old things. Verse 5, it says, therefore, put to death your members. Put to death your members, that's what it says in my translation. Probably a better translation is found in places like the ESV, in which it says, put to death what is earthly in you, or all the things that are earthly in you. You know, there are many uh, ways that we're described as as believers, as Christians in the Bible. One is, (coughs) excuse me, one I just mentioned a little earlier. We're described as foreigners in a foreign land. Our true citizenship is in heaven. Another way that we're described is we're described as athletes that, that are disciplining ourselves, disciplining our bodies, disciplining our lives to live a life for the Lord Jesus Christ. But very clearly what we're called, very clearly here we are described as executioners, putting to death daily our old nature. When he speaks of putting to death the old man, what he's saying is that, again, our true nature has changed. Our true identity is our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have all the power that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ to be free daily from the slavery of sin and ultimately We have been freed from that. But it's as if we are ones that put ourselves voluntarily back in the shackles of our old nature. But he says we are to put that aside daily. Daily we are to get up and proactively rise from our bed and put to death that old nature. It's putting to death who we were. The, world, the word is very powerful and very poignant and just right for this sake. Because what Paul is telling us and the inspiration again of the Holy Spirit is we can't just regulate who we used to be. We can't just regulate the sinful nature. We can't just kind of deal with it a little bit and not deal with it here. It's like radical surgery that must happen. And it's not a surgery that we are we are doing on our own. It's not a surgery that we're responsible for ultimately. It's the very surgery that God wants to do in our life. And our job is to yield unto him. So he said, but put off all that is worldly within you. And he gives a list of examples of these things. First of all, fornication. This is any sort of sexual sin. This is anything outside of the way God has designed sex for us. God has designed sex as something wonderful to be enjoyed in this way between a man and a woman within the boundaries of marriage. He says anything outside of that is fornication or sexual sin, uncleanness, thoughts and intentions. This goes deeper into the heart where those things originate, thoughts and intentions. He also says passions and evil desires, the physical and the mental, and covetousness, he says as well. This insatiable desire to gain more. This sort of belief that everything of the world, whether we state it openly or just sort of uh, inadvertently, this is the way we act. 
It's this assumption that all things exist for my benefit. Now you say, that's ridiculous. I don't think that all things exist for my benefit. But don't we reach out a little far beyond what really is for us? To think that I need that, I desire that, that should be mine. And he says, ultimately, all of these things that he lists here, he says, it is idolatry. Idolatry. Remember, idolatry biblically isn't just worshiping some object like this. I set that water bottle up as something to be worshipped. Idolatry is anything that takes place, number one, in our lives from God. If there's something that stands in place number one, position number one in our lives, that has become an idol of the heart. That is something that has been put in front of God. Now, here's the, here's the ironic thing about idolatry and sin. The sin itself is not the ultimate idol. The sin itself is me. That's where we are. When we reject God's commands, it becomes self-worship. We say unto God, God, I know what you tell me. And yes, I know that you're the creator of the universe, and you're, and you're my creator, and you're the just and righteous God, and you're the God that always knows what's best for me, always wants what's best for me, even when it's difficult. You're the God that always uh, makes the right decisions. You're the God that always knows what to do, and you're the God of love and of justice. But yet I think my way is correct. I'm going to do it my way. I want to do it my way. You see, that's when the sin, the ultimate the ultimate idol, the ultimate object of idolatry is not the sin, but it's me. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. When we think about wrath, this is the exact opposite of the type of wrath that's mentioned a little bit earlier, a few verses later. It is not the sort of capricious, impatient, fly-off-the-handle sort of wrath that we think about with humanity. But this is the just righteous, perfectly measured reaction of a holy God into sin. It's a God that says, I can't just sweep sin under the rug. I must deal with it. And that's why we know that on the cross, Jesus Christ, he bore the very wrath of God upon the cross because God couldn't just say, yeah, we'll forget about that. We'll sweep it under the rug. A holy God can't do with that. A holy God must deal with that sin, but a loving God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deal with it for us just and perfectly measured response to sin. You know, my son plays soccer, and uh, many of you may not be familiar with soccer, but in passing in soccer, it's similar to passing in other sports. But they talk about a weight being perfectly, a perfectly weighted pass. What that means is that if, if I'm kicking a soccer ball to, to someone else, if I kick it too softly, then it rolls short and the other team steals it. If I kick it too hard, it's too hard to control. But a perfectly weighted pass is something that gets to the person to perfect speed, perfect weight on the pass. In the same way, God is perfectly just and measured in his response to sin at all times and in all ways. And ultimately, he dealt with that with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said also, because of that, verse 7, in which you you yourselves also walked, in which you also walked when you lived in them. We were once slaves to sin, but now we are free. Now we're free. And here's the thing. When we think about that, when we are free from sin and God is calling us to something, you say, well, gosh, God's going to call me to a boring life, a boring life in which I must live like a monk. That's not it at all. You begin to see that you are in the calling of God all you were meant to be. 
He has created us, and that great illustration of C.S. Lewis, he's created us to run on one thing and one thing alone, just like a car, just like a car is made to run on gasoline and gasoline alone. We are made to run and to be fueled in our life by the Lord Jesus Christ and being on mission for him. You see, we're not called, we're not calling people away from life. God is not calling people away from life. We are calling people to life, that is, true life in God. True life. True life. It is not some sort of half-life. It is not some sort of boring life. It is the life that God created you for, and only in that will we find ultimate joy and pleasure. Psalm 1611 says that very thing. He says, in your presence, this is the psalmist uh, praising God, and he's affirming to the Father. He says, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, when we live for the pleasures of the world, they're ultimately fleeting. They ultimately go away and they leave us empty. But the pleasure of God always, always exists and continues. So number one, we're to seek the things above. Number two, we're to put to death the old things. And number three, we're to put on the new man. In verse 8, he says, But now you yourselves are to put off these things. So we see this great continued uh, illustration, this great metaphor here of taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. So my father was a machinist. I mentioned that before. He was a machinist, and he would always come home with very dirty clothes, uh, come home very greasy and, and, and metal shavings all over, and that's how he would come home. My mom would have to especially wash his clothes, then wash some load of like something that's okay if you get a little grease on it, maybe like old towels or something like that afterward because those clothes were so dirty. And so he would put those clothes off each day and he would take a shower and put on fresh new clothes. And again, that's the metaphor that God is describing to us. And it's, and it's a description of what we're called to do that we're not called to do on our own. He doesn't say, okay, good luck, go try it. He tells us that we have all the power that we need daily to put off the old things of our old life and to put on the new, discard your dirty clothes. And he gives a list of those again of example in case that church at Colossae is wondering exactly what he means. He says, put off anger, that sort of smoldering bitterness, that same thing is just smoldering like a fire, like embers that are just glowing. Put that off. Wrath, that is that capricious, bitter, uh, sudden, sudden outburst, that eruption that comes from that deep-seated anger. Malice is very similar to that anger. It's that brewing bitterness, that brewing bitter, bitterness that manifests itself in that sort of eruption of anger. Blasphemy. Here it's actually speaking of individual people, so it's probably better translated slander. Slander, slandering someone. Isn't that something that is way too easy for us to do? is to slander, to gossip, to speak poorly of someone else. And he says, in all filthy language that comes out of your mouth. This is the sort of speech that elicits sin, sinful thoughts, that sort of thing, whether it be gossip, whether it be uh, unwholesome language. It elicits sin, not only in yourself, but others. And he says, and don't lie to one another. As we walk in the flesh, it becomes easier and easier and easier. But he doubles down. He says, put those things off. Put those things off. Put them off since you have died to the old man and its deeds. Continually put off that residue of sin. It is the true you once again. It is not an impossible task. 
Daily commit your life into the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest you think it's impossible, he tells us again, he reminds us that this is the work that God is doing behind the scenes in your life. Verse 10, and have and, and put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. 2 Corinthians 4.16, take a look on the screen here. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? Even though our outward man is perishing, even though our outward body, our life is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So he tells us, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to rest and know that God is renewing us. But what is our part? I've said this before, I will say this again, I will say it ad nauseum. The single greatest thing you can do, the single greatest thing you can do to daily grow in your relationship with the Jesus Christ and grow in maturity is to stay right here in God's word daily, period. That's it. There's no great secret. There's no great new secret that's going to sell a bunch of books. The greatest thing that you can do, this is proven out not only biblically, but it's proven out statistically. The single greatest difference between what one might say a growing Christian is and one who is not is one who daily reads God's word. And daily doesn't just read it as, as James describes as a man who kind of reads it, forgets what it is, like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets what his face looks like, but reads it and says, God, I trust you. I've read something today, God, that you tell me to do this. And this is in direct opposition of what I thought was right in this particular situation at work. This particular situation at work has come up, and I wanted to do this thing. But God, I can tell through what I see in your word and your Holy Spirit that you're telling me I should do this thing. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust that your way is better. And as we do that daily, we begin to grow in faith. We begin to see that God is right. It may at times be the tougher road, but we begin to see that God's way is right and we trust him more and we continue to grow in him. And he says that we are renewed. Our mind is rehabilitated as we begin to grow in his word. Our mind is rehabbed. You know, in those rehabilitation shows, those uh, not, not uh, personal rehab, but, but uh, home rehab shows, uh, the thing that they often don't show you is how difficult the work is rehabbing an old home, Right? They could just sound like you snap your fingers and it's all done, right? And they have, you know, the, 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 the handsome guy and, the, and, the, and, and the, the lovely gal that are the hosts of the show. And they'll come in and, like, hit the hammer on the wall a few times. And they'll walk away and they don't show that there's, like, a, an amazing crew of people that are doing all the work behind the scenes. They don't often show how difficult the work is. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to rehabbing, renewing our mind in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are going to be some difficult days. There are going to be some days when you are in the midst of the storm and you say, I, don't, I, I just want to veg out on the couch. I just want to watch TV and eat ice cream. I don't want to spend time in God's word. I want to put an adult pacifier in my mouth like TV or my phone or whatever else, and I don't want to deal with it. But we have to. We have to trust God and we have to trust him in our way, his way for our growth. He says, this is according, verse, continuing in verse 10, this is according to the image of him who created him. It's God's plan. God's plan is that we would become more like Jesus Christ. He himself will give us the power that we need for it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled face, 
With unveiled face, there's no longer this separation, this distance between God and man. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we see, we see the glory of God, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. It is God's work, lest you, lest you, fall, uh, lest you fall down and scrape your knee and think that it's impossible to get back up and to continue to walk with the Lord. He says that he is doing the work. Behind the scenes, the greatest work of all of making you more and more like Jesus Christ. And he kind of ends in an interesting way here, as he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He says that all of these man-made barriers that we have erected through sin have been broken down by God, and he reminds us He reminds us of the fact that that root, the root of that great change, the root of that great uh, truth in Christ is found in the fact that Jesus Christ is in all. He is all and he is in all. So as we put on that new man, as we put on that new man, we have to be reminded, we have to remember, and we have to say that it is not of me, it is not of my work, it doesn't fall all on my shoulders. Yes, I am to follow Christ, but I am to seek the things above in his power. I'm to put to death those old things, and I am to put on the new man. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now in prayer, and as we leave this place in just a few moments, may we walk from this place applying what you've told us, that we are new in you, and each and every day our job, our work in the growth process as you sanctify us daily is to consecrate, dedicate ourselves unto you. God, I pray for those that are here today that when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, when it gets down to that moment even today, maybe even as we're at home and we're challenged by the sinfulness of ourselves or our family, that when it gets down to that moment that we choose to, to, to act your way, we choose to act with Christ-likeness and not according to our old nature. When we go to work today or, or tomorrow or we go to school tomorrow, may we, when it's so easy to choose path A, But we know that your will is path B. Lord, may we trust you there again. God, and as we do, may you continue to make us grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And may we experience all the joy that comes along with it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.